Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm Dom Nichols, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Given the momentous events in Israel in the last 48 hours, as well as the latest news from Ukraine, we give particular attention to events in the Middle East over the weekend. First what we know, then the potential implications for geopolitics and the Ukraine war. Bravery takes you through the most unimaginable hardships to finally reward you with victory. We need a military strategy for Ukraine to gain a decisive advantage on the battlefield, to win the war. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Monday, the 9th of October, one year and 227 days since the full-scale invasion began. And today, foreign correspondent Natalia Vasilyeva joins us live from Israel. We hear from Reem Mumtaz, an academic with the International Institute for Strategic Studies, and I'm joined by Francis Dernley, our assistant comment editor. I started with the latest updates from the front lines in Ukraine. And firstly, just in the last hour, news has broken. The UN's Deputy High Commissioner for Human Rights has said she's gravely concerned by the news that Ukrainian children stolen by Russia are suffering psychological or physical violence. So this is Nada al-Nashif. She's saying that there is no established system to return Ukrainian children who are transferred to other regions in Russian-occupied territory or to the Russian Federation. She was speaking to the UN Human Rights Council in Geneva. She says among the children who who have been reunited with their family after relatives travelled to the Russian Federation to retrieve them, some described experiencing or witnessing psychological or physical violence by educational staff. Now, you'll remember the International Criminal Court has accused Vladimir Putin and Russia's Children's Rights Commissioner Maria Lvova-Belova of the war crime of illegally deporting Ukrainian children. Those warrants are still live at somewhat limited Putin's travel. We think he's going to go to Kazakhstan shortly, but that's been about it. But also, Moscow has repeatedly denied forcibly taking Ukrainian children, saying it moved those found in orphanages or without parental care to Russia for their own safety and placed as many of them as possible with relatives there. Now, elsewhere, in the sort of southeast corner, so remember the, the crescent of the counteroffensive from Ukraine, the southeast corner of that, the Velika Novosilka sector, so just west of Vulodar in Donetsk Oblast. So Vulodar, the city, is about 40k southwest of Donetsk city itself. Today's British Defence Intelligence report says that that area has been relatively quiet over the last four weeks, much less fighting than the intensity we saw around June and July. So this is the axis I was describing axis due south through Tokmak towards Melitopol and the Sea of Azov. 
this axis, the southeast, is aiming towards Mariupol and, and down to the coast that way. Now, over the summer, Ukraine almost certainly liberated at least 125 square kilometres of territory in that axis. And since then, Ukrainian operations in that area have been largely sought to tie down elements of Russia's 36th and 5th Combined Arms Army to prevent them from moving west to reinforce the area where the offensive is having the most success. It's believed that's also drawn in a number of Russian airborne units, the VDV, the supposedly better trained and equipped units. And while this axis has stabilised, Russian forces likely remain in a defensive posture, this is according to British MOD, to guard against possible future Ukrainian action there. And they say it's unlikely there'll be significant drawdown of Russian forces from this axis in the next six weeks. Now, further to the northeast, and Ukraine's Eastern Force Grouping spokesperson Ilya Levlash, he said on Saturday that Russia has deployed all available forces and reserves north of Bakhmut in an attempt to deter Ukraine's continuing counteroffensive there. This has coincided over the weekend with widespread shelling reported across the whole front from Sumy down to Herzon, and civilian deaths have been, been reported there. Now, outside the country, Denmark is working to, in their words, expand and deepen a coalition of countries committed to delivering F-16 fighter jets to Ukraine. This comes from Danish Prime Minister Mette Frederiksen. She told the NATO Parliamentary Assembly's annual session in Copenhagen. It started today, the 69th session in Copenhagen today. She said, as long as the Ukrainians are ready to fight this war for our freedom, let us decide that war fatigue will not take place in our transatlantic community. Now, we are going to move on from there. As many of you will be aware, on Saturday, Hamas launched a surprise ground air and naval sea attack into Israel from Gaza, marked the most significant escalation between the two sides in decades. Hundreds of Hamas fighters crossed into Israeli territory, attacking nearby border posts, military sites, residential areas. We are very lucky to have Natalia with us, who's on the ground in Israel. Natalia, Thank you so much for dialing in today. Can you tell us where you are and what the latest is from your side? Hi, everyone. I'm just walking out of a hospital in Beersheba, which is a major city in the south of Israel. It's fairly close to Gaza, and we've been seeing rocket attacks here across the country, but unlike other places, it didn't see as much damage as others. So there was a place for Israeli emergency services to bring in patients, to bring in wounded civilians and soldiers. And in general, I've been on the road in the south since yesterday, just seeing the unimaginable scenes of this country essentially put on war footing from seeing tanks being transported on trailers across highways, across as far as Jerusalem, you can see those tanks on trailers. You can see abandoned cars on the sides of the road, on the side of highway, uh, near military bases, as thousands of reservists have been called up for duty. And again, these are ordinary people who just show up in their cars, so they ditch those cars on the road. And those scenes are quite evocative of the scale of uh, what's going on right now. It's definitely not a flashback. It's not an escalation. It, it does, feel, does feel like a real war. Now, the news this morning, Natalia, is Israel's defence minister has said that he plans to lay siege to Gaza. Have you seen anything of that kind of talk? I mean, that is a very, very significant operation. And I'm surprised that he came out so quickly to say that. Yeah, that's right. Again, I'm on the road. I'm not close to Gaza right now. The biggest difference between today and yesterday was 
that we've been hearing quite a lot of air raid sirens here in the south. We have not been able to get anywhere close to Israeli communities near Gaza, uh, unlike yesterday because of rocket attacks from Gaza to communities in the south. So it looks like the situation on the border is definitely escalating. This is what I can see from my side where I'm standing right now. Yes, and you may not have heard where you are in the country, but we're told in the last hour, air raid alerts, missile alerts have gone off in the north of the country. And also Reuters are reporting in the last hour that Hamas has said that it's now in talks to free Israeli women and children hostages in exchange for the release of 36 Palestinian women and children from Israeli jails. So that's the latest as we're hearing in the last hour. Right. Obviously, I mean, the the scale, the magnitude of the uh, hostage crisis is something that has been described here as unprecedented. The best known hostage situation in recent decades was the capture of Gilad Shalit, an IDF private. And... uh, Israel famously released, what, 2,000 Palestinian prisons just to liberate, just to set free Gilad Shalit. Here we're definitely, we're looking at dozens and dozens of uh, hostages. Neither the government nor uh, non-governmental organizations can give a direct figure. What we see on the ground is that basically wherever you go to any community affected by, by, by that, everyone knows someone who's been killed, who's been injured they either personally know or they, they, they um, have heard of people being kidnapped. It's a, it's a small country, but still, again, we're talking about dozens and dozens, if not hundreds of hostages. A lot of them are vulnerable people. We just recently met someone from a kibbutz, from a border kibbutz in Gaza, who told us about an 84-year-old woman kidnapped and an 80-year-old woman kidnapped from kibbutz nearby. So this this hostage crisis is, uh, is definitely something we haven't seen in a long time. And I think it's going to take a while before we know the actual scale of it. And what is the mood where you are? Is it turned the, the shock from Saturday, Sunday? Is it now turned to anger? What's the mood amongst the people around you? Well, I spent the night in Jerusalem and I drove in the morning from Jerusalem to Ashkelon in the south. Ashkelon was very quiet in the morning. I got there around 8.39. The streets were eerily quiet. And when I got there, my colleagues from other media outlets who were spending the night told me that they had to spend the night in an air raid shelter because of constant uh, attacks from Gaza. So there are very few people out. People are still very much shocked. If you go around towns and villages, they look empty. You would need to go to a place like a hospital, where I am now, a hospital in Beersheba which is humming with activity. There are lots of uh, families of patients, well-wishers, volunteers who are serving free food, coffee to to doctors and patients. So in places like that, they look busy. Obviously, there's a lot of activity, like military activity on the road, military hardware being transported and soldiers seen here and there. Uh, Even individual soldiers, which are reservists, getting ready to uh, to assume the duty but overall this uh, the pervasive feeling of shock uh, is still there uh, wherever you meet people they they look like they're on the verge of tears and um, uh, people are ve- having a very hard time to process what happened just 48 hours ago of course and you say that there's obvious military presence with movement uh, we've seen that reported as well israeli hardware tanks and uh, where we've seen 155 self-propelled guns moving south is there more obvious security force presence on the ground are there troops just patrolling the towns and cities where you are there are no patrols in towns as such but i would say starting yesterday afternoon we 
started seeing improvised checkpoints and different checks on the road. It could be something very improvised where there would be an officer on the road who would take a glance at you and see that you're a civilian and they would let you go. In some places closer to the flashpoints of hostilities, you would see a, a proper checkpoint. You would see roads being blocked. For example, yesterday we tried to get to one area in the south and there was a proper military checkpoint and they basically asked us to turn around and leave. So roads are blocked now and again. There are also improvised checkpoints around big cities. There's one not far from Jerusalem. I also heard from a colleague who arrived in Ben-Gurion this morning saying that early morning today there were improvised checkpoints around the airport. In the area, again, where we did not hear any report of infiltrations, we don't know of any, but yeah, you can see this activity on the road is quite visible. Yes, in terms of those infiltrations, we heard overnight Israeli spokesperson said that there were seven and then later created to eight areas where there were still thought to be Hamas fighters that had got into Israel. The latest reports are that they've all been dealt with. I don't know if arrested or killed, but Israel now believes it has control of its country again. That's the latest report. And just finally, from you, Natalia, how are you able to report? Are there additional permissions you need above and beyond your normal journalistic accreditation? Are you able to go everywhere? Are you in a press pool or able to travel around on your own? There's definitely no problem with paperwork right now. What happens is as soon as there is a security incident like yesterday, we nearly bumped into an area where there was a reported invasion by Hamas fighters. That road would be immediately blocked by the military and they just wouldn't let you pass, whether you were a journalist or not a journalist. They would just think it would be too dangerous for anyone other than military personnel to go. And again, like one of the biggest threats is obviously rocket attacks and we keep hearing them. It looks like rocket attacks on the south of Israel this afternoon are much worse than yesterday. As I've said, the areas where we were able to report from Yesterday, it's out of bounds completely right now, and we're a bit far off in Beersheba. There has not been a single rocket attack here since we got here in the morning, but all around the area, you can hear the thuds of missile defense. It's quite loud and un- 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 unmistakable. Well, Natalia, thanks so much for dialing in. We hope to speak to you again later in the week. Thanks, Natalia. Okay, I'm now delighted to welcome to the podcast Reem. Momtaz Reem is a consultant research fellow for the International Institute for Strategic Studies, specialist in European foreign policy and security. Reem, delighted to have you with us. Now, we were chatting earlier on and it's very clear. I think we both we both came to the same conclusion, almost talked over each other, how we, we just shouldn't allow ourselves to get to run too far ahead. There's already a lot of misinformation out there, which we'll talk about at the end. But you are able to gently talk to us about some of the links between Hamas and other groupings and what it might mean, but more importantly, what it doesn't mean. And we should be very clear about what we don't know. But welcome to the pod. Thank you. And yes, I think that's a very good point to start with. The attack that Hamas and Palestinian Islamic Jihad launched against Israel is definitely a humbling geostrategic event. It has revealed things that we were not expecting and also is raising a lot of questions for which we don't have 
certainty or clear answers. We can try to share some ways of trying to think about things and what to look out for. What we do know is that, of course, Hamas and the Palestinian Islamic Jihad have links and have long-standing uh, ties with uh, the uh, Lebanese Hezbollah, and both of them, the three of them, have long-standing deep relations uh, with Iran. We also know that leaders from all of these groups and from Iran have met recently. This is in the public knowledge. The leaders of Hamas, the public Islamic, the Palestinian Islamic Jihad, and Hezbollah put out statements when they met together in Lebanon. And all of them have repeatedly stated that one of their goals is what they call the unity of the front, meaning having a united front against Israel. These might be indicators, but they are not proof. That doesn't tell us what exactly happened in detail in the run-up to this attack, who did, who knew when, and how involved every party is. And so we just caution before jumping to conclusions, while also keeping an open mind about the possibility that things perhaps we considered or that appeared to be unlikely could become more likely, given what a game changer and what an unexpected event this attack has been. Yes. Were you, what aspects of it particularly surprised you? I personally Maybe it's the impact of social media, but, uh, and you could be—I could be accused of splitting hairs between what's the difference between a shooting, a bus bomb attack, rockets, and what have you. But some of the images we've seen and reports we've heard of the out-and-out barbarity, which reminded me of ISIS and Al Qaeda, I was quite surprised by that. Did that catch you at all, or is it anything that has particularly surprised you in the last forty hours? The thing that surprised me is the level of sophistication of this attack. We had never seen this level of sophistication of ability to coordinate a multi-pronged attack by, by Hamas and Palestinian Islamic Jihad. What we saw on Friday, Saturday morning was you know, several notches above what we had seen in previous conflicts. That is definitely the thing that has been the most surprising. What is shocking is, of course, what you refer to, which is just the violence that has been used against civilians. Are you able to just chart for us the landscape, please, and any connections between the likes of Hamas, Hezbollah, the Palestinian Islamic Jihad, Fatah, these other groups, and, and Iran and the wider regional players? How close are they as, as groupings? Could there be any coordination? For example... I understand there has been some activity in the north of the country, largely ascribed to Hezbollah, but they put out a statement which was effectively saying they were not going to take part in this and said if the US didn't get involved, then effectively they wouldn't have to. So in terms of coordination, we know that there is coordination and, and quite regular coordination between whether it's Hamas, Palestinian, Palestinian Islamic Jihad, Hezbollah or Iran, because actually those parties actually tell us in their public statements, this is not something that they hide. They say that they meet regularly, that they coordinate, that they cooperate, that they help train each other. So that is in the public domain. And that is something that these groups have said publicly. In reference to the attack, it wasn't actually on northern Israel. It was on disputed uh, territory, which is called the Sheba Farms. It's disputed between Lebanon, Israel, and actually the border there is not exactly de delineated. 
So indeed, there was an attack that Hezbollah claimed responsibility for. It happened yesterday morning on Sunday. It was a mortar attack on three distinct Israeli outposts in the Shaba farms that Hezbollah has said publicly that they were behind. Again, we shouldn't be jumping to conclusions about the opening of a second front in the south of Lebanon, the north uh, of Israel, but certainly that is front of mind in terms of concerns and possibilities. Yes, now the U.S. have sent a carrier strike group towards the area. U.S. CENTCOM, that central command, they've been out a statement yesterday. This is from General Michael Eric Karila, the commander of U.S. CENTCOM, said that they stand firmly with our Israeli and regional partners to address the risks of any party seeking to expand the conflict. Now, US forces will be moving towards the area on a sort of tactical level, if you like, because there we believe there are US nationals that have been taken hostage. So the US will have an interest there, obviously. But it, clearly, this is also a message either directly to Iran, but just to say that we, we don't want this to spill out. More broadly, that would not be in anyone's interest. Do you think this would be expected, this move by by the US in terms of moving heavy metal into the region, or would that be at all destabilising? Is it just business as normal? It is absolutely not business as usual at all, because this is the biggest maritime deployment into the eastern Mediterranean that we've seen in a while. This is the biggest carrier strike group that the U.S. has. And the U.S. Defense Secretary yesterday was very clear in the goal and the objective of this deployment, which is deterrence. And when you say deterrence, of course, it is deterring Iran from expanding uh, the front and, of course, the, the groups that Iran is close to like Hezbollah and others, the, the concern about the widening of the theater of, of operations is very clear, and it's very clear among American officials, Israeli officials, and European officials, which is why this carrier strike group has been sent into the eastern Mediterranean. Whether it will be an effective deterrent remains to be seen. The U.S. has attempted over and over again to disengage militarily from the region, only to be dragged back in. And we've seen in the past, past administrations, whether it's the Trump administration or the Obama administration, in fact, not respond in a decisive manner when, for example, their allies like countries in the Gulf, Saudi Arabia, have been attacked by Iran. So that has thrown into a bit of doubt, not to overstate that, but a bit of doubt, the U.S. deterrence and commitment to the security of its partners in this region. Thank you. And just finally, what should we be looking out for over the next 48 hours? I was struck by Saudi Arabia's comment. They were very quick to to comment, but it was a pretty vanilla statement, as I suppose you'd expect. They couldn't really do much more. But I mean, should we be expecting big statements from regional countries, maybe global bodies? Or what would you be looking for? No, what you're looking out for right now is whether the ongoing diplomacy to free some of the hostages or bring about some sort of prisoner swap between the hostages that Hamas and Palestinian Islamic Jihad are holding and the civilians that are in Israeli prisons. That is one. We know that Qatar and Egypt are both working on that and trying to mediate. That is one. And of course, the second is what we've been talking about, which is violence or tension, including, by the way, in the West Bank and in East. Jerusalem, where uh, tensions have been boiling even before this attack has happened, namely with more and more emboldened aggression and violence by Israeli settlers in settlements in the West Bank against Palestinians. Green, thank you so much for joining us. Now then, 
Francis Doney, assistant comment editor here at The Telegraph. You've been listening to everything today and obviously looking at the news over the, over the last couple of days. What's your take on this, Francis? Make no mistake, these events will send shockwaves through geopolitics. They will have significant consequences, both in the Ukrainian theatre of war and beyond. The degree of Russian involvement or perceived involvement will be relevant to that, which I'll come to. But let's look at Hamas first. Their immediate motivations for these attacks on Israel remain uncertain, but two potential reasons emerge. First, a strike driven in response to escalating pressure in Gaza, and second, to set back normalisation efforts between Saudi Arabia and Israel, which would potentially sideline the Palestinian cause. For context, listeners will recall China mediated a deal between Iran and Saudi Arabia earlier this year, with Beijing expressing a keen interest in resolving the Israel-Palestine conflict as a next step. In response to that and China's growing influence, the US sought to normalise relations between Saudi Arabia and Israel. Notably, Saudi officials indicated a willingness as part of that to talk without the precondition of recognising a Palestinian state. Hamas stood to lose from this, giving them an incentive to carry out attacks now and reignite tensions between the various powers in the Middle East and the wider world as each side will feel compelled to back Israel or the Palestinians. So that's Hamas's motivation. But what about other powers? A destabilised Middle East and Balkans and Africa arguably favours Moscow, distracting the West from its war in Ukraine and drawing resources away. That could very well happen, and Kyiv will be sensitive to that. Iran backs Hamas, and Russia backs Iran. Neither is speculation. A Hamas spokesperson over the weekend said that they had backing from Iran for its attacks, and this was confirmed by a senior advisor to Ayatollah Khomeini. The Wall Street Journal is even reporting that Iranian security officials helped plan the attacks directly since August, giving them the green light for the assault at a meeting in Beirut on Monday. We don't know if that's true, but there is no doubt of a long-standing relationship. As for Russia backing Iran, it's important to remember the close ties that have been forged between the two countries as a result of the Ukraine war, purchasing drones used to attack Kyiv and other cities in exchange for intelligence and finances. Then there's the fact that Russia's foreign minister, Sergei Lavrov, met with the leadership of Hamas earlier this year. Putin is lauded among that group. To stress, this is not to say that Russia has been involved in the planning of these attacks only that there were advantages in destabilising regions around the world, which we know that they were proactively involved in. They certainly share some responsibility. Yet the scale of Hamas's success could trigger blowback. This could be one of those instances where Russia sought to destabilise but not trigger all-out war, which may not favour them. After all, Russia has extensive connections with Israel in terms of intelligence sharing, trade and arrangements regarding flight paths over Syria. Its influence has grown in the region now, since the US interest waned. It won't want their involvement to increase. It may also have the unintended consequence of turning Ukraine sceptic but fiercely pro-Israel Republicans against Moscow, if Russia is seen as falling under a new axis, including Iran and Hamas. As such, if Russia's intentions were only to destabilise, then they may now get far more than they bargained for. As a consequence, they might not want to go all in behind Iran, but depending on the Western response, that decision may now be out of their control. If Israel strikes at Iran, then can Moscow do nothing and abandon one of its few allies? 
Perhaps they will see themselves as too invested and crucially perceived as too invested and consequently unable to redefine their relationship with Iran and thereby have no choice but to pick a side, especially if Israel tilts in opposition to Russia, which could come as no surprise given the statement the Russian foreign ministry put out over the weekend, which essentially supported the Palestinian cause. And what of the West's role? Many are calling the outreach efforts made by the US and other Western powers to Iran in order to try and reignite the nuclear deal naive. In September, America agreed to release $6 billion to Iran, but only for humanitarian purposes in exchange for five Americans. Yet many are saying now that $6 billion for food and medical supplies frees up $6 billion Iran can use for terrorism and war. Iran is evidently all in behind Hamas risking direct confrontation with Israel. This could very quickly spiral, something we warned about months ago on the podcast when discussing the Middle East. My own view is that the heinous acts we've seen this weekend are connected with the horrors carried out against the Ukrainian people. Although not a direct spillover, it was indirectly motivated and encouraged by it. The degree of connection may not be easily divulged immediately, But when you have countries like Russia stoking unrest and supporting nations like Iran and terrorist groups like Hamas, is it really any surprise that those entities are capable of carrying out such attacks? As we've discussed many times, when we permit evil in the name of stopping escalation, all that usually does is allow that evil to prosper and proliferate. And this may only be the beginning. Africa, the Middle East, Taiwan... The world is becoming increasingly unstable in ways that would not have been possible if Ukraine had been given the tools to potentially shorten the war much earlier, stalling Russian hostile activity globally, maintaining the transportation of grain to Africa and sending a clear signal to the consequences of attempts to break the international rules-based order. In 2012, President Obama set a red line over the use of chemical weapons in Syria. Yet the West did nothing when Assad began gassing his own people. Intervention then may have stopped the spiralling violence, in turn stopping the expansion of ISIS, in turn stopping Russian involvement in the Middle East. In 2014, Putin invaded Crimea. Again, the West equivocated, leaving the door open for the full-scale invasion and the deaths of hundreds of thousands of people. In 2021, the West abandoned Afghanistan, sending a signal that we were out of the Middle East. All these actions, carried out in the name of de-escalation, have triggered the exact opposite, leading to far more bloodshed later down the road. This is another of those moments, and the West has to decide how it's going to respond. But if we take one lesson from the past decade, it should perhaps be one simple and stark fact. Unpunished evil grows. Thanks, Francis. Just if I could talk parochial domestic stuff for a moment. So the Labour Party conference has just started here in the UK. The Labour Party in opposition at the moment, what, double digits ahead in the polls at the moment, but another year or so before the election. So it could change. But looking like the Conservative government for the last 13 years might be out in a year and Labour in. Labour have always been much more vulnerable to accusations of anti-Semitism, no support for Israel or in these issues, much more so than the Conservative Party. Certainly under the last leader, Jeremy Corbyn, that, that was very easy blows to make. And he's been making some pretty wavering comments up in Liverpool. How vulnerable do you think the current leadership 
is to these accusations. Keir Starmer, the current leader of the Labour Party, is on course at the moment to be the next Prime Minister, but obviously he supported Jeremy Corbyn when Corbyn was in power. Do you think any of these labels can still be hung on today's Labour Party? They've been absolutely unequivocal in their support for Israel in the last 48 hours and supporting the British stance. But do you think there's any residual lingering doubt about their support when it comes to this most difficult of issues? I think it will, Dom. It matters because there are many parties in the West, like Labour, who have far left elements who side strongly with the Palestinian cause. The fact is, Sir Keir Starmer backed Jeremy Corbyn, a man who even yesterday refused to condemn the atrocities committed by Hamas, to be Prime Minister. He served in his shadow cabinet. That is a stain that will not easily wash off. But that said, as you say, Labour have been eager to underline the fact that regardless of what some of their activists say, they are firmly behind Israel now. Yet I wouldn't be surprised if we see some Labour MPs make statements that go against that line. Starmer, like many other Western left-wing party leaders, has MPs in his party who are vehemently opposed to Israeli policy and are bound to vocalise that. This seems, I think, an opportune moment to comment on the many attempts to justify the actions of Hamas we've seen over the weekend. Some have even applauded it, seeing it as a moment of national liberation. How warped your perspective must be to argue that the slaughter of civilians is in any way justified morally or politically. It's not as if it will help the cause of the Palestinians. Many people who were once sympathetic will simply turn away now. Anyone who supports this is essentially advocating for civilians to be seen as legitimate targets of modern warfare, period. And that is something we've seen becoming increasingly commonplace in recent years, from Syria to Ukraine to the Middle East. This should be something everyone condemns, regardless of your views on the Israel-Palestine conflict. The fact that it isn't, I think, well, I think speaks volumes. Well, thanks, Francis. Let's go to final thoughts now. We've had to lose Natalia and Reem. They're both uh, both very busy, so they've had to dash off. But I would just like to echo Reem's point there that she made earlier on about how we've just got to be really careful here about rushing to conclusions, linking too many things, joining all the dots and just getting ourselves in a right old spin. And just I did a cursory look around this morning around social media and I found verifiably false fake information out there. So if you look around, you'll see images on TikTok supposedly showing a photograph of Israeli jets about to, in the words on the image, rain down hellfire on Gaza. That image is actually from a video game. It was posted on TikTok last night. It's already had 1.7 million views. There's also there's lots of image of images of, of missiles being fired both into Israel and from Israel into Gaza and so on and so forth. A lot of the footage I've seen is from Syria, proven to be from Syria over the last decade. And then finally, there's, a, there's an image that suggests it's of Cristiano Ronaldo, the ball footer, who is holding a Palestinian flag. Actually, it's a Moroccan footballer, Jawed Al-Yamik, and the video is from the 2022 World Cup. So just be careful, please, just take a chill pill. We're very clear here of saying that when we don't know something, that's often just as powerful as saying when you, when you do know stuff. So don't worry, we're not going to hold back when we don't know what we're talking about. There's going to be a lot of frenzied activity on social media in the next few days, I would imagine. So just stay frosty, everybody. Francis, your final thoughts, please. Sure. Well, I spoke earlier about the potential ramifications for Ukraine of the events in Israel. Israel was hesitant to back Ukraine fully following the full-scale invasion, but no such hesitancy from President Zelensky for understandable reasons. 
further to his own moral feelings about the horrors we've seen, politically he must know the importance of being seen as belonging to the Western axis that is fast forming. His remarks following the attacks were revealing, I think, and I will read an extract from those now. Today, the entire world saw horrifying videos from Israel. Terrorists humiliate women and men, detain even the elderly, and show no mercy. In the face of such a terrorist strike, everyone who values life must stand in solidarity. We in Ukraine have a special feeling about what has happened. Thousands of rockets in the Israeli sky, people killed just on the streets, civilian cars shot through, detainees being humiliated. Our position is crystal clear. Anyone who causes terror and death anywhere on the planet must be held accountable. Today's terrorist attack on Israel was well planned and the entire world knows which sponsors of terrorism could have endorsed and enabled its organisation. Israel has the full right to defend itself against terror, as any other state, and it's critical that the whole world responds to terror in a unified and principled manner. Now, there must be a part of President Zelensky that looks at the reaction to what is happening in Israel and wonders why there's not similar shock for the constant atrocities being committed on Ukrainian soil by the Russians. He's very clearly keen in that statement to emphasise the connection between the horrors in Ukraine and the horrors we're seeing in the Middle East. And I think that reference there to be where he says we know which sponsors of terrorism could have endorsed and enabled its organisation. I think we know who he's talking about. Arguably, one could say that the horrible events that we have seen vindicate what he has been saying since the beginning of the war about the proliferation of such violence the longer that it was enabled in Ukraine. But I think the big question is, Dom, will people listen this time? Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just £1 at www.telegraph.co.uk forward slash Ukraine the latest. Or sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine live blog on our website where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm London time each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so that you don't miss it. To our listeners on YouTube, please note that due to issues beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload, so if you want to hear Ukraine the latest as soon as it's released, do refer to podcast apps. If you appreciated this podcast, please consider following Ukraine the latest on your preferred podcast app, and if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. As the disinformation war ramps up, we are relying on your support more than ever. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk and we do read every message. You can also contact us directly on Twitter. You can find our Twitter handles in the description for this episode. As ever, we are especially interested to hear where you are listening from around the world. Ukraine The Latest was today produced by Rachel Porter and Giles Gear. Executive producers are David Knowles and Louisa Wells.
Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. When your skin feels nourished and glows, you radiate confidence. Osea makes giving your skin a glow-up easy with their clean, clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This seaweed-powered duo features two of Osea's best sellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com, code GLOW.